Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today, whether you're in person or joining us online via our stream. Today, we are in part two of our sermon series called The Real God, and we are going to talk about God's goodness this morning. But before we get started, I would like to take an opportunity to address a topic that I would wager most of us could come to find some agreement on in this room. Now, I know that's a pretty big statement, especially in today's climate, with it being a political season that's also a presidential election, and then just having a Supreme Court justice pass away. It seems if you just take a quick glance at social media, you will not only find people who are not in agreement on anything, but are vehemently attacking each other. So I think when we say something that we can all find agreement on, at first we're like, ah, I'm not so sure. But I would bet every one of you in this room during the course of your life would admit that you have faced challenging circumstances, right? That's a statement we can all get behind, and most of us would admit it probably happens more often than we would like it to. None of us are immune to this. None of us are going to get away from that in this life. And lately, we've all been reminded of this much more so than we would like to. Sometime in mid-March, there was this new thing that came out. It's called COVID-19. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of it. But what we thought would be a two, three, or four-week hiccup in our lives has turned into six, seven months. And here we are, almost touching into October, and our lives still have not tracked back to what we would call, quote-unquote, normal. And my guess is that some point in the last six months, we are being honest, every one of us would admit to feeling overwhelmed to trying to navigate this season, right? For some of you, the virus itself hasn't even been the most challenging problem that you've had to face. Your problems seem to be much more intense. How am I going to provide for my family? You no longer have a job or your business has gone under and you are wondering if they don't extend these unemployment benefits, how am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to provide? And as you've looked for a new job in this COVID economy, it's really difficult to find something that pays what you had been making before. For a lot of you, maybe it's a relationship thing. You have a relationship with your spouse or maybe a sibling or a friend that's a little bit more tumultuous than it was in the past, and you're not sure if that relationship is going to make it through this season. Or for some of you, maybe it's like my family. And previous to COVID, you had a family member pass away unexpectedly, and now you have to figure out this new relationship dynamic for your mother or your siblings and your friends now that someone you love is gone. So when you consider all of this, when you practically think through it all, I make this statement that God is good, and if we're honest, we're not really sure if we believe it. Now, the reason I know this is because I've had those thoughts cross my mind as well over the past few years and way back before in my life. And I know I'm not supposed to admit that, right? Like, I'm a pastor. Pastors aren't supposed to question God's goodness. Pastors aren't supposed to say, well, I'm not sure if I feel it all the time, but When I stop, when I slow down, there's moments where I step back and I'm like, Lord, are you kidding me? Like, what is going on? Why are we presented with this situation? Why do we find ourselves in these circumstances? And for some of you at this point, you're not even sure if God likes you, let alone he's good. But I want to start by telling you something. And Chip Ingram, who created this series, starts um, his discussion with this thought. 
that God really, really likes you. And not like that junior high love like you, right? Like I'm going to pass you a note and circle yes or no. I mean, that's how we did it when I was in junior high. I think that's an outdated method at this point, right? But like deep down from who God is inside, he really, really likes you. And you see, sometimes we just don't feel that way. When life is really hard, we feel like God is distant. When we've messed up, we feel like he's back there with his hands on his hips, and he's saying, when you get your act together, when you can start doing what's right, then I will start to like you. Then I will start to be good to you. But you see, that's because we define goodness differently than God does. Chip, in his introduction to this week, says, you will move towards the mental image that you have of God. So what you think and what you believe about God is going to create a picture, and that picture will dictate how you view him. So if you think God really likes you and that he's good and that he actually even likes you, you're going to have a mental picture of a God like that. But by the same token, if you think God is down on you, if you think God dislikes you because you're sin and he's always there looking to judge you, that will create a mental image of who God is as well to you. So today what I want to do is paint a very clear picture of how God views you. Because so often we base our ideas and our thoughts of who or what somebody is on data that's just not really correct. But I think it's been termed as fake news nowadays and both sides throw it back and forth at each other. But if you base your belief on God of what you've heard or what somebody said, but it's not based on truth, it will taint the picture of who he really is. I think a great example of this comes from one of my favorite books. If you're a reader, I would encourage you to grab this book and read it. It's called The Shack. And The Shack is based on a true story of a man who has, well, a family that has a tremendously awful occurrence happen. And the father of the family is struggling with it. So much so, he ends up going back to the place that this event occurred, which was literally The Shack. And in it, he has a dream or a vision of some sort, but he gets to interact with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father presents himself right away as this wonderful, caring, generous, kind, black woman. And the first thing the Father says to him is, geez, I didn't think that's what you look like, God. And God responds, says, I don't look like this. But you think that I'm some old white male who's in the sky with a big gray beard. And I don't look anything like that either. So I'm presenting myself to you like this to start to break down that image that you've created about me because it's not right. You see, if we base our view of God on incorrect data, it will taint our view of who he actually is just like it did to the man in the book. And so what I would like to do is start off with my big idea, my challenge. If you're a writer, if you want to jot something down, this is the main point. So go ahead and write it down. But I want you to know that God is good even in the midst of your most difficult circumstances. Let me say it one more time. You can believe, you can know that God is good even in the midst of your most difficult circumstance. And to make that point, I would like to take a look at the life of a guy named David. And we get this account from the Bible and the book of Samuel. So if you want to follow along on your phone or in your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the TV and the screen behind you. But as we jump into this 
this account, we find David in probably what is the most famous story in his life, right? Most of us know this, but in case a few of you don't, I'll give you the cliff notes. David has just fought a giant named Goliath, right? David was an Israelite, and the people of Israel had an arch nemesis. They were the Philistines. You can think of the Philistines and the Israelites as like the Patriots and the Bills, right? They're in the same division, so they face each other more often than any other team, and they hate each other. They don't like to get involved, and when they do, it's always a fight. So this guy, Goliath, comes out to the people of Israel, and he is a literal giant. He is at least nine foot, six inches tall, probably a little bit bigger, and he's challenging anyone to come out and fight him. Because in those times, armies would sometimes send their champion down to fight, and the winner would be the winner of the battle. Because losing hundreds and thousands of men could be devastating to your community and your economy. And that's what's playing out. This Philistine Goliath comes down, and nobody will come out to fight him for obvious reasons. Well, this younger man named David is bringing food to his brothers who are in the battle, and he hears Goliath's challenge, and it rocks him and makes him angry. So much so that he goes to the king and he says, I'll fight him. And he fights him with a sling. He throws a rock that hits Goliath square in the forehead. Goliath falls. David runs up, grabs his sword, and chops his head off. And after that has happened, the Israelites are excited. The champion, who was a literal giant, has been defeated. They charge the battlefield and they grab David and bring him back to have an interaction with the king named Saul and his son Jonathan. And that's where we're going to pick up in the text. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And it says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. He gave him his armor and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So let's talk about this guy who was introduced to the account, this man, Jonathan, right? Jonathan was the son of the king, and he was incredibly impressed with what David did in one way, but there was something else that's happening. Jonathan has this relationship that just instantly sparks with David that's one of respect and love and care like a brother, and I think our first inclination might to be Jonathan is just solely impressed that there's nothing more that David has defeated this giant, but that's not what's happening. You see, Jonathan himself was an experienced warrior. We tend to think, you know, son of the king, he probably had soft, delicate hands, silver spoon in his mouth his whole life, never had to fight, never had to do anything, but that's not the case. A few chapters before, we read about Jonathan that he is a mighty warrior, he has already been in battle. He's been so successful that his father puts him in charge of one-third of the army. He was not some experienced little kid that was just impressed what David did and became infatuated with him in a relationship. Something more is happening in this instance. And I say the point, you say, God is going to use this. This is something that God will use in David's life because of his goodness being extended towards David. You see, this is incredibly important. God knows what David is going to go through. And for some of you that don't know the story, David will eventually become the next king of Israel, which means it's going to be removed from Saul's family, right? And at first, David is on Saul's good side. 
Saul loves what David is doing for him. Saul loves what David is doing for the kingdom through his military action. But there is going to come a point through no fault of David's that Saul's love and affection turns. And it turns to hatred. And not only will he hate David, but he's going to try to kill him on multiple occasions. And God knows David is going to need a friend. David is going to need an advocate that will protect him, who will look out for him against the rage of King Saul. And in this moment, God begins the process of creating a system that is going to protect David. And the way he does that is by creating a moment where David will become immediately loved by the man who is supposed to be the next king of Israel. God will use this to show David that he can know he is good even in the midst of his most difficult circumstances. We read on the passage, we find out that David has success everywhere he goes. He is a mighty warrior. He does great work, so much so that Saul gives him his own platoon of soldiers. And David keeps obtaining victories, and we find what the people think about David in verse 5. It says, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now you see that, and our first thing is just to glance over this is an inconsequential detail, but it's not. Do you see the importance of who is impressed by what David is going to do? It's the individuals that will one day be under his subjugation. If David is to take over the kingdom, the people are going to need to have a good impression of him as a leader. So I don't see this as an unimportant detail, but rather something that is giving us insight into God's character for what David is going to have to do. You see, God is laying a foundation for David to accomplish everything that he has in store for him. And he's doing that because he loves him and because he's good. But then something happens. Something changes in the story. Something occurs that takes Saul's attitude and takes it on a complete 180 towards David. And we find it in verses 6 through 8. I'm not going to read them, but I'll tell you what happens. As Saul and Jonathan and the men of war are coming back from battle, they fought the Philistines. They've obtained this great victory. The women and the other people in town come out to meet their warriors. And they are singing and dancing because they've achieved a great military victory. And this is a hard concept for us to understand. Because when our men go over and fight, some people go see them to bring them back. But if we're honest, we're not all as concerned as we should be for what's going on. And the reason for that is there's not a great effect of what happens there, how it implies on us here. But in biblical times, that wasn't the case. If the men went out to war and they didn't come back victorious, that meant another group of people were coming to your home to take you, your children, and everything you had and carry it back to their kingdom. And at best, you would be their slave. At worst, you could be raped or tortured, or have something else significantly bad happen to you. So it's obvious why the women are there, and they're so excited. And first, everything is well. Saul is in front, probably, right? He's riding in his chariot. He's got his arms around the reins. He's probably done some push-ups to get a little bit swollen, right, before he gets there. And he hears the people, and he is excited. And as the women come out, they begin to sing a song. 
And we see exactly what they sing in verse 7. It says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul hears the second verse, and he whips his head back around to see the women who have said this thing. And in this moment, Saul has a decision to make. He can either be excited that he is receiving glory and that David, his servant, who he put into place, which actually makes Saul look better, is receiving glory, or he can get upset. He can be angry because he is not receiving the praise that he feels that he should. And this is how he responds. Verse 8, it says, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me, to me, they have only ascribed thousands. Saul gets upset. I love how the message version of the Bible paraphrases this. It says that Saul takes it as a personal insult. His jealousy towards David is put on full display. But what I also find interesting is where he takes it, right? Because I know what I would do if I was prideful and arrogant and angry, which I struggle with. A little bit of information there. I would have tried to justify myself. I would have said, do you not know what I did? I've been king way before David was ever even on the scene. Look at all the things I've done for you. But that's not what Saul does. He actually jumps to this conclusion that David is after his kingdom. Why would he do that? Why would he go right to this assertion that David wants to take over the throne? Saul does not know that David has been anointed to be the next king. That is not something that's on his radar. That is not something that he knows is going on. But if we look back to chapter 15, which is a fantastic read, and I would encourage you to go home and read the entire account. We see why this event takes place. Saul has been commanded to go to this people group called the Amalekites, who are terrible people. They are horrendous. They commit atrocities that we all would condemn and say are terrible. And God tells him, you destroy them, and you kill all of the cattle, all the sheep, the goats, everything. And Saul goes, and he wins a victory. But instead of doing what he was commanded to do, Saul takes the best of their things, the sheep, the goats, the stuff that would be like money in our economy, and he brings them back. He also lets the king come back with him, and the Lord is angry with Saul because this isn't the first time he's done something like this. So he sends a prophet to confront him, and when he confronts him, Saul sees him coming. He throws his arms out. He's excited. He says, look at what we have done. We have followed the word of the Lord. We've done the thing he commands them to do. And the prophet Samuel says, then why do I hear goats and sheep and all these animal noises? And Saul tries to justify himself. Saul starts to make excuses. He says, well, I brought these back so that we could sacrifice them. When everybody knows in reality, Saul was trying to increase his wealth, which is why he brought this stuff back. And this is, again, not the first time Saul has done something like this. And the prophet says to him, because you have been disobedient, because you have made excuses, because you didn't authentically, sincerely apologize, God is going to take the kingdom from your family, and he's going to give it to somebody else. And from that moment that Saul heard them sing about David, he viewed him, and correctly so, as the person that would one day take over his kingdom. Now, I think it goes uh, pretty easy to say, goes without saying, that if the king thinks that you are trying to take over his throne, 
you're in a bad position, right? Kings have authority. They can say what they want and have you killed. They can send soldiers after you. And that's the position David finds himself in. He's in a bad place where he is going to have to be constantly looking over his shoulder to see if somebody is coming after him. He has to watch his back. But we get, it's amazing when you look and see who is there to protect him. Who is there to look out for David? And we get an example of it in chapter 19 and chapter 20. In chapter 19, we find that Saul gets together with his men and his son, Jonathan, and they come up with a plan to kill David. But Jonathan runs around, goes against his father's will, tells David who is able to escape. And then again in chapter 20, we find that Saul finds out where David is hiding in this place, and rather called Ramah. And David, rather than fleeing to another village, which is what I would have done, actually comes closer to Saul to seek out his son, Jonathan, to tell him about his problem. And they come up with a plan. They just say, David was obligated to go to these meals as he was a commander of Israel's army. But rather than go to the meals, David was going to stay away, and Jonathan would cover for him to see what Saul's demeanor was towards David. And we find that after the first night of the meal, Saul hasn't said anything. But on night two, he says, where is David? To which Jonathan speaks up and he says, I gave him permission to go be with his family. And we get to see how Saul responds in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is verses 30 through 33. It says, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as he is established, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send him, bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And then Jonathan answered his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul gets angry, and he picks up a spear, and he hurls it to strike his own son. So Jonathan knew from that day forward his father was determined to put David to death. Do you see how God was protecting David all the way back when he gave him and Jonathan their first interaction? You see, God is not always going to insert himself into our challenging circumstances and just remove them. You see, that's our definition of good. That's what we want him to do for us, but it's not his. That's not the pattern we see in the world. That's not the pattern that gets laid out anywhere in Scripture. But what God does promise is regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, that he will be there with us. And I know a lot of you are thinking, yeah, that's great, Adam. These are all instances where David is following God. Of course God's going to be good to him. He did his will even when it was hard. Why don't you tell me how God responds to David when he's done something wrong? when he stepped outside of the boundaries that are set before him. I'm glad you asked. Because there's a very specific occurrence where that happens, and it is a situation that will make probably any sin that any of us in this room have been involved in pale in comparison to what David does. One day, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is on the roof of his palace. And he's supposed to be off at war with his men fighting a battle. But David has found some ease in his life now, and he wants to play him back doing something he shouldn't. And as he's looking down, he sees a woman bathing, and he likes what he sees. She is attractive, she is gorgeous, and David wants to know more information about her. So he sends one of his servants down there to inquire, and she says, 
The servant says, well, this is, her dad is this person. Her name is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of a man named Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah is a name that David known because in the Scripture we find that he is one of David's personal bodyguards. And you don't get to be a bodyguard of the king unless there's some kind of a connection there. So he probably was also his friend. And when David heard this information, it should have been cut off. It should have been cut off right when he was on his palace, but it wasn't. And he has them bring Bathsheba back to the palace where he sleeps with her, and she ends up pregnant. When he finds this out, he sends word to his commander to bring her husband back. As Uriah is there, he asks him how things are going, and he sends him to his house so that he will have relationship with his wife, and then it will be covered because Uriah was home, and the baby is actually his. But Uriah won't do it. So rather, David sends him back to the war with a note. And the note is intended for the general. It's enclosed so Uriah can't see it, and it details the account of how he is to put Uriah to death. Because he can't just kill him. Right Then it looks bad. So he says the note, he says, put him in the front of the hardest fighting, where the battle is, is the most difficult, which is something they would do with their mightiest warriors, but then I want you to pull everybody back. I want you to leave him out there by himself. And that's exactly what happens. And Uriah dies. And David brings Bathsheba back to the palace, and he marries her. And she ends up having his baby. David commits a horrendous offense. He's had an affair with one of his soldier's wife, and when he couldn't cover it up, rather than apologize, he has the man killed. And David thinks he gets away with it. But catch this. You see, God in his goodness will not let this wrong go. He has to correct it. So Nathan the prophet is told by God, you need to go confront David about what he did. So he does, and he comes up with a story to kind of throw David off the scent of what he's doing. He says, David, there's a person in your kingdom. He's a rich man, and he has flocks and herds, everything you can think of, and he had guests come to his house. And when the guests came, rather than kill one of his own animals, he went to his neighbor, which was a poor person. He had one little sheep that was like his pet, and he took that from him and slaughtered it so that he wouldn't have to take any of his animals for the feast. And David is furious. David at first says, this man should be put to death, which is against the law, and David knows it. So he says he's going to pay back four times what he took from him. And he says, as he says it, Nathan looks right at him. He says, David, you are the man. He lays out the details of his affair and murder of Uriah, and David is the person in the situation. So now something's different, right? We've talked about David when he's following God's will, when he's doing the things he's supposed to do, but now David is the person who's committed the wrong. He is the offender, and this is where, if we're honest, we think God's attitude towards David is going to change. Now David has done something wrong, so let's see how good God is in this circumstance. And Nathan lays out the consequences for David, which are severe. But you see, because God is good, he can't just remove the consequences of our actions or in David's in this moment. You see, that's the idea of goodness that we need to pull out of our head because it is not a right one. God is not a cosmic genie who is just here to put himself into whatever your circumstances are and just remove you from them. He's not there to bail us out of whatever it is that we are going through. 
But you see, the way God shows his goodness is that when we are wrong, not only does he correct us, but then he extends grace and forgiveness that we just flat out do not deserve. You see, you can know that God is good even in the midst of your most difficult circumstances, even if you brought those on yourself. And the way he does that, the way he did it, is by paying the penalty that your sin actually calls you out to. I tell you this story because I want to help you understand that when the Bible says God is good, it's not just talking about the moments that he protects you, It's not talking about the moments when he takes away the suffering or the difficult circumstances that you find yourself in, but also when he corrects the errors or the sinful actions that you have taken, that I have taken in our lives. You see, we need to get that into our heads, that God's correction is for our benefit, and it's actually one of the reasons why he is good. See, we don't like to hear it, but we know it's necessary if we're honest, right? The problem is we don't enjoy receiving the correction when we're the person who's done the wrong. But when we are the person who has been wronged, we actually long for that correction to happen, right? I mean, if we're fair at work, at school, at whatever it is, if you've been wronged, you long for the authority to come in and make it right. Parents, you know this. When your child has been treated wrong by a sibling or somebody else, they look for you to come in and to help them to make it right. And we do the same thing with God. We just don't like it when we're the offender. And that is what God in his goodness has to do. And the reason that he ultimately does it is he is pointing us towards heaven. His correction is to point us towards what's coming, not what we are in right now. Because you see, when this time on earth is up, God would rather us spend eternity with him than separated from him, suffering in a literal place called hell. That is his goal. That's why God is good, because what he does is in the hope that one day we spend eternity with him. So when God corrects the wrong things in our lives, it is actually part of his goodness. Dr. David Jeremiah says it like this, and I really love what he says. He says, God's goodness is put on full display and in showing his generosity towards you. That is what the Bible means when it says God is good. His goodness is seen the most through his generosity. This is Chip, or his idea. God has an infinitely generous attitude towards you and towards me. That is why he is with you in whatever circumstance you are facing. He's constantly trying to reach you with the message that Jesus died for your sins. And he's doing that so that you can be with him one day when this world is over. That is why he does it. That is why he will not remove the difficult circumstances. It's because his goodness makes him do that for our benefit. I've got two more things to say in closing. Most of us, not most of us, all of us are in one of two camps. We either believe that Jesus is God and that he died on a cross for our sins, or we don't. And I have a message for both of you. First, I want to talk to the people in the room that would say, I am part of that crowd that believes that message. 
We have all been reminded in the past six, seven months, and going further back, plenty of our occurrences of how hard life can be, how difficult it can be to traverse this time that we are here on earth. But the Apostle Paul, who's the greatest evangelist we've ever known, except for Jesus, writes a letter to a church in Rome who's struggling with this issue. And this is what he has to say to everybody in here who professes Jesus as their Lord. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for his good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is what I can promise you. If you profess faith in Jesus, God sees you. He sees your circumstances. And he will literally come pick you up and carry you through it if you can't do it. I know people are well-intentioned when they say God will not give you more than you can't handle. But they are, he's not, that, when, that is not accurate when it talks about the circumstances of life. And the reason I know this is this is what that same Paul, Guy Paul, wrote to a letter in a church in Corinth. This is, again, the message version of the Bible. I love how it describes it. I think it paints such a clear picture of this truth. Paul says, we don't want you in the dark, friends, about how hard it was when this all came down on us in Asia. It was so bad that we did not think we were going to make it out alive. We felt like we'd been sent to death row and that it was all over for us. But as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of us trusting in our own strength, our own wits to get out of it, we were forced to rely on him. And he was working it out for your good. You see, sometimes God in his goodness is going to force you and he's going to force me to rely on him to get us through what we are doing, what we are dealing with. And the reason he does that is because he is working it out for our good. Now, for anybody in here that doesn't, necessarily claim Jesus, you're not sure how you feel about this whole Christian thing. First, I just want to say whether you're here or online, we are so glad that you are with us. We love that you would come and spend some time with us, but this is something I want to tell you. This is what, how God thinks of you. That same Apostle Paul, writing again to the church in Rome, says this. He says, he who is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him, graciously, give us all things. I think I butchered that one more time. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, graciously, give us all things? And ask my son Lincoln to come up on stage here. So Lincoln is one of five of my children. I know a lot of you know that. But this is my oldest, and I, I, I love this boy. I love him and all of his siblings equally but differently, and I would do almost anything for them. And a lot of you as parents can agree with this. But let me tell you what I wouldn't do. I would not let him go through one ounce of suffering for any of you. None of you. I would put him behind me. I would stand in front of him, and I would protect him with everything I had before I let him deal with anything for any of you. And if you're a parent, I think you can relate to what I'm talking about. But that's not what God did. God took his son, and he sent him into the mess for me and for you. That is how much God loves you, that he would take his one and his only son 
and he would send him into the mess to pay the penalty for the sins that you and I have willingly participated in. That is how much God loves you. That is how good he is. And I hope that if you have never heard that or you've never understood it in a way that maybe you have now, you will talk to me or send us an email or give us a phone call during this week so we can get together and talk a little bit more about a God who loves you like that. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for your promises. I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for how you jumped into the mess for me when I was your enemy, when I didn't deserve it. But that's how much you loved us. I pray that if somebody doesn't know that message, that they would not leave today or would not let this week go by without reaching out and talking to someone about how much you love them. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.